Thank you very much for warming our hearts. I'd like to ask you please to open your Bibles this morning to the chapter in Romans that we were giving some attention to last Lord's Day morning. That is the fifth chapter of this book, Romans chapter 5. And I do want to remind us that tonight we observe the Lord's table. And if you would like to give some preparation in keeping with the message that I trust to preach tonight, you could read the first two parables that are in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I uh, want to preach tonight on the fearful danger of being nothing but a tear in a congregation like this. And I trust that the Lord will make use of this and perhaps reading that ahead of time will be beneficial to us that we might be able to really properly fence the table tonight as well as rejoice in it if we can come with liberty and the knowledge that we are truly, genuinely a child of God. I want to begin our reading this morning with the fifth verse of this chapter I hesitate to do that from one standpoint because it breaks into a sentence, but I think we'll be able to do so and have the clarity that we need. Romans chapter 5, and verse 5 begins by speaking of the confident expectation, translated hope here, the confident expectation that we have of our justified standing before God and our having peace with Him, verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told here that that confident expectation does not disappoint for this reason. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now here is the objective fact upon which that subjective sensation, feeling, awareness, confidence about God's love for us, here is the objective fact upon which it's based. Verses 6 through 8, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now think of this. One will hardly die for a righteous man. Though there can be exceptions to that. Perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates, the King James translates that, commendeth, the idea being recommends, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were of the completely opposite character, we were not righteous, we were not good. What Paul is explaining here is that the outstanding evidence, demonstration of the love of God the Father for us, not just the love of the Son, He dies for us. 
But God the Father sends him to die for us, does so out of his love for us. The outstanding demonstration of that is the character of the people for whom he died. They were not people of good character. The words that are used in this passage for them are those that are helpless, that is, that they are people who have no means whatsoever of commending themselves to God or escaping who and what they are. They are sinners. They are the ungodly. And he'll say in the 10th verse, they are actually the enemies of the Father who sent the Son to die for them. Now, folks, we are in this passage as we've been in a number of scriptural passages now because these are all passages that are helpful to us in keeping with the series with which we're engaged on Lord's Day mornings. And that series, as you know, is based upon one of the New Testament's last admonitions to Christian people. It's found in the last of the letters to us, the book of Jude. And we're admonished there to keep ourselves in the love of God. And I feel the necessity of clarifying nearly every Lord's Day morning that that is not referring to our love for Him. It isn't referring to our maintaining our own love for God. Nor is it referring to our keeping God in love with us or keeping God's love for us as if there's something we must do so that God will persist in loving us. Both of those are great misunderstandings of that text and both of them lead to considerable error about the nature of the Christian life. What is being referred to there in the first place, there are some other dimensions to this, but what is being referred to in the first place is our maintaining that awareness and perspective that God loves me. There is so much about life and personal experience that would seem to call that into question. It's one of the struggles that Christian people have all the time. And so we're admonished, look, keep that perspective. Keep yourself in the love of God. And what that admonition then speaks to us about is this. That this thing that we want, and we want so often, so desperately... This deep persuasion of God's love for us, this is not something that we can be passive about. It's an entirely wrong posture to be waiting upon God in a passive posture. We're admonished to be active about this. Keep yourself in this love of God. There's a certain responsibility that we have. And if we ask, well, what then am I supposed to do? 
The answer to that is in what is said previous to that admonition and following it. That admonition occurs in the middle of a sentence. And the sentence begins this way. And you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And it's referring there not just to our faith in Christ and the gospel, it's referring to the Christian faith. What we would call the totality of our good confession of the theology, the doctrine, the instruction of Scripture. Building yourselves up on that. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Then there's this. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then it follows with waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. In other words, surrounding the admonition are these things that are means to being able to maintain that perspective. And those means, of course, are given to us as things that we are required to do in order to maintain and to heighten our awareness of the Lord's love. Now, in this, as in every area of our sanctification, we are not left to ourselves. Justification is a matter that is entirely in God's hands. Sanctification, we're taught all through the Scriptures. Sanctification is a matter both of our own obedient efforts, obedient to what the Scripture admonishes us to do. It's a matter of our own obedient efforts and the ongoing work of God in our souls. And so what we have here in this fifth verse is the other side, Jude, keep yourselves in it. Here's the other side when it comes to this aspect of sanctification, as in all aspects of sanctification, the Spirit of God is at work. When it comes to this matter specifically, of my awareness and my security in the love of God the Father for me, the Spirit of God is at work about this. The language here really is so suggestive. It's really illustrative in its nature. The love of God has been poured out effusively within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And no doubt about that, He was given to us. Paul will say in Romans 8, if you have not the Spirit of God, then you are none of His. This is not a matter of your maturity and that whether you possess the Spirit of God is dependent upon that factor. It's not really even an issue of whether at the present moment you're living in a fleshly way and you're possessing the Spirit of God is dependent upon somehow you're moving out of that category and that way of life. Every believer, young and old, immature and mature, 
struggling with sin or enjoying great victory this morning, possesses the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is resident in his life. He's given to us. What is he given for? Many things. It's a wonderful study to take your New Testament and to go through and discover for yourself the various ministries of the Spirit of God to a Christian. One of them is this. He pours out within your heart the love of God, meaning your knowledge of it, your growing apprehension and recognition that that's what this is today. That's why I feel this way today. That's the sensation that I'm having. That's where the security is coming from. It's this growing knowledge of, recognition of the love of God for me. Pouring that out within your heart. Now, folks, the degree of the diffusion of that through the entirety of our spirits. The degree of the diffusion of that. And the possibility of the increase of it. And the depth of the impression of it. All those things are directly dependent upon who the Spirit of God is and the nature of our relationship to Him. And so this morning, I want to deal with those matters especially. The Spirit of God Himself, the nature of His relationship to us in this, and the message as I've stated it in the worship guide is the Holy Spirit outpouring God's love into our hearts. So I want to begin here. Who is God the Holy Spirit? Are you sure that you are certain about that matter? Because I want to say again, the degree of the diffusion of His love through your spirit, the possibility of the increase of your awareness of that, the depth of the impression, is directly related to who He is. Building yourself up on your most holy faith includes really being certain that I know who this resident is inside me. And giving to that all of the sufficiency of what the Scripture reveals about it. Now, we have a catechism card that asks that very question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And I want to ask our men in the sound booth, we normally don't do this on a Lord's Day morning, but I want to put this card up, and in just a moment we will quote it together. You'll have it in front of you. It'll be, for many of you, a refresher. But when we ask this question, the answer that is given to us is, the Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit. We are introduced to him in the first two verses 
of our Bible. Back then, before the creation, He is there. He is the eternal Spirit proceeding from the Father and sent by the Father and the Son that would give to you the impression that he is someone who is subordinate proceeding from the Father sent by the Father and the Son. Giving the impression perhaps even that he is an inferior. Not so. That's what the next line is safeguarding. But of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with both. And then there is this now that becomes so personal and precious. And given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ. You would have never partaken of Christ apart from Him. It wouldn't have happened. Jesus explained to Nicodemus, it's as mysterious as the wind as to how that happened. We sing it, I know not how your spirit moves convincing men of sin and creating faith in Jesus Christ. No one can explain that. Even our Lord needed to just simply use an illustration. To make me by a true faith partaker of Christ, and there's this folks, and all his benefits, that he may comfort me That is, the Spirit may comfort me. He's the comforter, Jesus said. And he will never leave me nor forsake me and abide with me forever. Let's say that together in answer to the question, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit proceeding from the Father, sent by the Father and the Son, but of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with both, and given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Amen. And brothers, you can take that down if you would, please. There are four points from that answer that I want to give some attention to this morning. And I'm doing it so that we can build ourselves up on the Christian faith. And in doing that, we can experience somewhat of what this first fifth verse is speaking about. And the first thing that I do want to call your attention to is the fact that we're told here of His being the eternal Spirit and of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with both the Father and the Son. Now, folks, think of all that that means. One of the earlier catechism questions asks the question, what is God? 
Well, the answer that that card gives is answering what the Spirit is. If He's of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with both the Father and the Son, then the answer to that first question, what is God, is the answer to what the Father is, what the Son is, and most certainly what the Spirit of God is. And it is this, that God is a Spirit. And you want to remember that that was true of all three persons of the Godhead until the second person took flesh. They all are Spirit, and Spirit alone. God is a Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those three things, with reference to all the rest of these, all the rest of these, in every respect, all these perfections, he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in them. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and every other perfection that the that Scripture reveals is true of God. The Spirit of God is all of that. I want to use just one illustration because to try to deal with this, it is so expansive, would be impossible even in just a few attributes. But folks, let's take this one. When David writes the 139th Psalm, he's marveling over several of the perfections of God, and one of them is this. He asks this question, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? And whither shall I flee from thy presence? The spirit and thy are obviously the same here. He's speaking to the Lord. He singles out the spirit. Everything he's going to say now of the Lord is true also the spirit. And it's this, that you can't go anywhere that the spirit of God is not. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? Now, let's just take up some possibilities. For instance, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol... Thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. Now let me just for a moment expand on this. When God wanted to impress upon Abraham the innumerable multitude that his descendants would be, he took him out in the night and asked him to raise his eyes to the sky and attempt to count the stars. This is many, many centuries before Christ. There is no artificial light out there to in any way interrupt and make difficult the seeing of the heavens. Have you ever been in a part of the world where you've been able to look up and you can actually look out through the edge of the Milky Way 
it it is stag it 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 like it puts you on your back on the ground. It's absolutely overwhelming. Abraham would have just had to shake his head. He might have just actually chuckled and said, I can't, I, I can't even begin. Now, folks, use that same illustration and think of God wanting to impress upon us that his spirit is so immense. He is so infinite and boundless that if you ascended up into heaven, think of God saying, I want you now as a 21st century person with all of these centuries of discovery behind us and everything now that we know about the depths of outer space, really the uncountable light years out there, if you ascend up into that, you cannot go anywhere that the Spirit of God is not. Put all of your scientific learning to use in this. Like Abraham attempting to count stars. And I'm saying that because when we think of the Spirit of God indwelling us, we have this impression of His contraction into something very small inside. When in fact, this is what is inside. The immensity of the Spirit of God. And then folks, I want to call your attention to this secondly. We're told here that He proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Father and the Son. Now that is language that is used by our Lord in the upper room discourse. The word proceeds and the word sent. And those are terms that theologians understand to be very significant terms. What I want to point out without going into any detail about all of that theologically, what I want to point out is that there must be some reason that the Son of God would even tell us that. Everything else that he says to us in those chapters about the Spirit of God and his sending the Comforter to us, all of those other things tend to be very heartwarming. Many of them are relational in their nature. But here the Lord is saying, without explanation, certain things that we realize now are very technically important when it comes to the relationships between the members of the Godhead. And you think to yourself, why would they even be said? And among all the other answers that could be given to that, folks, I would say this for us, that in that context, the upper room discourse, in that context, it would be at least to inform us of God the Father's attention to us. and of the joint provision of both Father and Son for us in this matter, this matter of the Spirit of God and ourselves. Folks, this is a matter of God the Father's purpose. It is a joint activity of Father and Son. Jesus says it in that passage. 
He says the Spirit is, is sent by the Father, and he says, I will send. If you have any question this morning about your being in the eye of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've been provided with the eternal, infinite, unchangeable, immense Spirit of God. And this is a matter of Father and Son and their desire for you and for me. And then I want to call our attention to this. It says that we're given Him. He's given me. Given me. And what Paul does is inform us as to where actually it is then that I have received the Spirit of God. And Paul expresses this great uh, concern for the Corinthians when he puts it in forms of a question. And he says, what? Don't you know that your body, 5 foot 11, 195 pounds, 4 foot 2, 85 pounds, your body is the neos, the word that is used in the scripture not for the total temple complex, but for the very holy of holies. Your body today, if you have been regenerated, if you've been born of the Spirit, your body is the neos of the Holy Spirit today. And folks, it isn't just our bodies. He actually resides in our spirits. He resides in the part of us, for instance, that Galatians 5 says is where the flesh itself tends to express its lusts. It's in our spirits that there is envy, jealousy, and deceit, and bitterness, and anger, and wrath, and enmity, and uncleanness, and lasciviousness. And it's there that the Spirit of God counteracts those things. And that what He spawns and nurtures is love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and long-suffering and self-control. It's in our spirits. You know, any of us who've ever really been in love know that this is the thing that you so desire that lovers desire to be able to do. They want to be of one spirit. They so desperately want to know the innermost of each other, and it's impossible. And if you've never been persuaded before, your marriage will persuade you of that pretty quickly. You will discover that no human spirit can interpenetrate another human spirit that you will never know another human being as you know yourself. Impossible. But the Spirit of God 
can and does. And He can completely fill your human spirit. All of His immensity, yes, as it were, contracted to where there's not a corner, there's not a wrinkled surface in your soul. David marvels over it in Psalm 139. Lo, there's not a word on my tongue but what you know it all together. And from afar. Given me that way. And he's given me to make, a part, make me partaker of Christ and all his benefits. And the way it works in the economy it's called of how the persons of the Godhead have worked together, folks, is it's been God the Father who has purposed everything. And it's been the Son sent to earth to procure, to make possible our procuring everything. And it's the Spirit of God's office to apply everything to us, all the benefits of Christ. He does this. And our Lord told of this in that upper room discourse when he said, what the Spirit of God's going to do, I'm going to send him to you. He proceeds from the Father. I'm going to pray the Father, Jesus said. Think of this. I'm going to ascend into heaven and utter a prayer. I'm going to pray the Father. Peter said on the day of Pentecost that Jesus being to to the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord ascends to heaven. He prays to the Father. Don't let that surprise you. The Scripture says He intercedes for us. The Son prays to the Father in heaven. He prayed to the Father and He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says... And he, that is the ascended Christ, has poured out. He shed forth what's happening today on the day of Pentecost in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord said, what's going to happen is this. After he comes, he's going to glorify me. And the way it's going to work is this. He's going to take of the things that concern me and he's going to disclose them to you. He's going to reveal them to you, enlighten you regarding those things. John 16, verse 14. And that brings me to this fourthly out of that catechism definition. All the result of this, folks, is the comfort This is how the Spirit of God comforts, that He may comfort me and abide with me forever. I want to pause on that for just a moment, that matter of His abiding with us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Every single day we defile His temple. Think of that every time you confess sin and you ask, for the cleansing of the blood of Christ. Think of the Spirit of God and the application of Christ and that benefit to your defiled temple once again. Once again, He cleans it all up. He scours it all out. He washes it thoroughly until your spirit is white as snow again. He does it again and again and again. And He will never, ever leave you He will abide with you forever. 
in that and all his ministries. And all of it is intended to comfort you. One of the great comforts that he ministers to us is assurance that we are actually a child of God. And Lord willing, when we gather again tonight and we give attention to this matter of the fearfulness of being nothing but a tear in a whole parcel of the field that is filled with genuine children of God, genuine wheat, by the grace of God, as we consider that fearful possibility, everyone here who is truly a child of God will experience tonight the ministry of God's Spirit comforting you with the fact you do belong to Christ. You're genuine. That's his ministry. And another of his great ministries of comforts, folks, is evidently this, pouring out within our hearts the love of God. Let's turn our attention to that now. This is the person that God has sent to do this for us. And now there is this matter of his actually accomplishing it. Think of your heart this morning. Think of how insecure it often is. Think of how fearful you often feel. Think of how tremulous and doubting and ignorant and guilty. And what the Spirit of God does is pour out in all of that heaving, hurting confusion of your heart. He again and again pours out effusively the love of God. How does he do that? You ever wondered about that when you read this verse? How does he do that? Well, not always in the way we think. Here's what we typically think. We typically think in terms of what you would call a kind of a momentary embrace. You could use the word almost hug. Then I've told you before of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin's illustration for this. It does occur. It's real. There is this matter of, in a moment, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes in answer to a direct cry that we send up, Lord, I desperately need a sense of your love for me today. Sometimes this, Goodwin says, is exactly how it happens. If you ever watched a man and he's walking down a road with a little child, and the child is happy and he's secure in his father's presence and he's scampering about, he's down in the ditch or he's over the way in the field or he's up the road ahead or he's lagging behind, he's here and there and his distance from his father is not greatly concerning to him because he can see his father, he knows that is his father, but every once in a while the child will draw near to his father and you watch and the dad will give him a hug. He'll put his arm around him and squeeze him. Goodwin says that is what the Spirit of God does sometimes, and especially when you make this attempt to draw near to God. You have the sense of being embraced. But folks, that is not the primary way this happens. That's what we think, and that's what we're waiting for, and that's often what we're disappointed about because it doesn't seem to be taking place when actually the primary way 
that we are given the impression of this is in keeping with what Jude said to us. Beloved, build yourself up on your most holy faith. When you do that, the Spirit of God takes the things of that Christian faith, especially those things that are centered in Jesus Christ, and He discloses them to you. And that is heartwarming. That's like the two on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us while He spoke with us, by the way? So folks, when it comes to this matter then of wanting more of a sense of the love of God for me, how actually does that increase? It increases in this way. I want to show you that in a cross-reference. And I'd suggest that you write this one on the margin of your Bible right here by verse 5 so that you keep together two things that we so often separate and we ought not separate and it's our separation of them that actually is depriving us of much of a sense of God's love for us. The passage I'd suggest that you put as a cross-reference here is Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 19. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And then I'd like to ask us to turn there. But what I want to begin with is the 17th verse. We'll come back to verse 14 in a moment, but go to verse 17 with me. <clears throat> you got that written in the margin of your Bible, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And now turn there. And remember what we're attempting to do. We're attempting to understand this matter of how the Spirit of God pours out this knowledge of and then this sensation of the love of God for us, how he does that. Well, here is the primary way he does it. Paul says in verse 17, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's not talking about your love for someone. It's talking about your being rooted and grounded in God's love for you. May be able to comprehend with all the saints. All right, this is something, folks, that every Christian is supposed to have the experience of. All the saints. You may be able to comprehend. And now look at this. This, folks, is going to be as vast as these things we've been talking about, distances in the outer regions, immeasurable, and we're going to be told in the next verse, actually unknowable, and yet there's this language that you may be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which actually, in the end, it's always going to surpass all the knowledge you, have, you, could, you could ever garner in a lifetime. And that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, here are the words I want you to know. Folks, you can see that this passage is talking about what we're talking about. My knowing God's love. And the language, verse 18, is this. Comprehend. And verse 19, know. 
How do we come to comprehend and how do we come to know? And the answer to that is, it takes truth. It's the Christian faith to which I am more and more enlightened that is disclosed to me by the Spirit of God as I deliberately and intentionally attempt to build myself up in the Christian faith. And there's this as well. Look at that 14th verse now. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, verse 16, <clears throat> 16 that he would grant you, keep going, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now look at this line. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Drop to verse 18. So you may be able to comprehend this love of God. You can see the connection. If you read the passage on your own, I'm having to just sort of skip down through the really operative words in that text. But it's very apparent, folks, that this matter of really comprehending the love of God for me is not a matter primarily of my just saying, Lord, give me an embrace today, but it is a matter of what Jude said, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. And it could be, couldn't it, that so often we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking the questions of, Lord, if you truly love me, why don't you lift my spirits today? If you truly love me, why don't I feel comforted? If you truly love me, why don't I have my heart warmed? And really, we need to ask ourselves some other questions. I need to ask myself from time to time how intentionally Am I turning to the things of God this morning? How deliberately am I actually reading my Bible concerning the greatness of the Christian faith? You know, folks, you can put it down on this very specific kind of level. Did you read in your Bible anything this week about your sin? about the depth of your sin, about the ungodliness of your sin. Verses 6 through 8, that's how the Spirit of God ministered to us last Lord's Day morning. He talked to us about our sin. We ended up built up in the Christian faith regarding that fact, our nature by conception. He talked to us about that. And what was the result in many cases? An overwhelming sense of the love of God for us. What have we read in our Bibles this week intentionally about our sin? About God's judgments? What have we read in our Bibles about the ways in which God has taken people out into eternity? The fearfulness of some of those means, some of the things that they've experienced in their earthly bodies as God was taking them out into eternity. What have we read that the Christian faith reveals to us about the world to come, about the fallen angels that Hebrews says to us that Jesus Christ did not lay his hand upon, and it is not God's intention to ever save them. Build yourself up in these things of the Christian faith. The mystery of the incarnation. 
Folks, I could put it so plainly here. This is not to chide. It's just actually to put some things within our hands to use. But take out a single catechism card. Take out just one catechism card and look those scriptures up and dwell on the things of the Christian faith. And as you listen and as you read something, the Spirit of God, pray in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is often pleased to take those things, enlighten our eyes to them about our true religion, the religion as it is in Christ Jesus, and we feel the warmth spread. And really all that was required is that we would strike a match. That we would take a catechism card and strike a match concerning our most holy faith. It's a blessed thing, folks, to know that this is not just left entirely to a sovereign choice of God, but that that sovereign God says to us, you actually can keep yourself in this by building yourself up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. And it is a blessed thing to do this. And I want to bring us to a conclusion by pointing something out. If you'll turn back with me, please, to that fifth chapter of Romans. I really shouldn't leave this out. If I leave this out, there are going to be left, people left here this morning who really needed what I left out. And that is when, so often, when this takes place. And if you'll notice, please, what we have in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 actually began in verse 3. That whole line of reasoning began in verse 3. And it began with Christian people like ourselves being able to exalt in a certain situation. What's it called here in your Bible in verse 3? It's called what? What's the word? Which means what? We've talked about this. What's that mean? Pressure. Pressure of all kinds. Exalting in that, folks, follow the line of reasoning right down through. Exalting in that is basically in the end. Because the Spirit of God has poured out a sense of God's love for you. And the tribulation is not meant to make a statement to you that God has withdrawn His love or cooled. Not at all. Folks, the way it most often works, wouldn't you say this from your own experience? We really tend to have very little sense of this I mean, I can pick some illustrations out at Disney World. Oh, the depths of the love of God for me. Here at Disney World, I'm just overwhelmed with this. At a football game. Oh, I'm so glad I came this afternoon. What an impression of the immensity of God's love for me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way around a Christmas tree. Folks, it works that way when nearly everything is taken away from us. 
And we are reduced. We have collapsed in our spirit. And there's nothing to inflate us inside, to lift us up. As the psalmist says, to lift up our heads. It's then. It's then when we deliberately attempt to remind ourselves of something about the Christian faith that the Spirit of God pours out all through our spirit. The knowledge of God's incomprehensible love for for a wretch like me. And if you today are under great pressure, you can count on it. God means to do a great thing for you. And you want, and I want, to realize that anything that puts me in a position where the love of God can be more real, and I'm going to use the word felt, more felt by me, anything, anything, folks, that thing is a precious thing if it provides that possibility more awareness of the love of God. Let's bow our heads together. Oh Lord, thank you for the greatness of your loving kindness to us and your mercies, which we truly can say are new every morning. We do confess to you, Lord, we apologize to you. For how slow we are to take note of your daily mercies to us. Every one of them an evidence of your love. Even the sunshine and the rain today sent by your love. And we pray, our Father, that you would enable us through the remainder of this day, Lord, grant that we not help us, we pray, that we not walk out of this auditorium this morning into a different atmosphere in our spirits. Help us to retain this. These things concerning the Christian faith. And grant our Father that they would continue to have a diffusive ministry of your love in our spirits today, all through the day. We'll praise you for it. We ask you in Christ's precious name, amen.